Hello and welcome to Out With Me, Susie Ruffle. This is Series 8, Episode 3. Good morning. Well, I'm saying good morning. You might be listening to this in the afternoon, the evening. I don't know. But for me, it is currently quarter to seven on Saturday morning. I have crept upstairs with a cup of tea whilst my wife and my daughter sleep downstairs. Who knows for how much longer? To say hello and to do the intro to this brilliant interview that I've got for you today because I'm off to Ireland today. Not, I don't know how much you care, but you might. You might want to know what I'm up to. I'm getting up early so I can go to Ireland. I'm going to Belfast today to do a show and then over to Dublin tomorrow. I'm taking my mum with me. But by the time you hear this, all of that will have happened and hopefully I will have had lovely shows, my first ever tour shows in Ireland. So I'm very much looking forward to that. But if my voice is a little croaky, that's why I've not long been up. I've got a fantastic episode for you today. I'm really excited to share it. Emmett de Montrey, I loved his book and I've fallen in love with him a bit. I just think he's brilliant. And I urge you all to go and buy a copy and read his book and hear his story. So interesting, so brilliant and such a kind, lovely man. But we're going to get to that shortly. As ever, I have some listener emails to share with you. And also, wow, so many of you got in touch after Tig Nataro's episode last week. Lots of people on my Instagram, lots of people on here here being my emails people clearly love Tig and why wouldn't you she's amazing so if you haven't listened to that episode yet maybe you're someone that's not massively into comedy and you're more into podcasts and that's how you know about me Tig Notaro is an enormously successful stand-up I think she's absolutely brilliant has been nominated for Emmys and Grammys just brilliant so if you haven't listened to last week's episode have a listen to it but this week's episode it's a real corker I'm really proud of it and I can't wait to share it with you but first as I say let me share some listener emails. I do sound a little bit like I'm doing late night radio, don't I, with my voice. Okay, let's start with this one. Hi Susie, I came across your Out podcast earlier this year, a latecomer I know, and I've been catching up rapidly. I'm now on season five. Thank you so much for helping our community feel so represented and seen. You're doing really important barrier removal work, so keep going. I've never heard that before, but I like it. I'll take it. Thank you. I decided to write in because I felt that the older LGBTQIA plus voice needed more representation. I couldn't agree more. Thank you for being that for me. My story isn't unique. I came out to myself at the age of 19 in 1985 after years of pining against and crushing on girls from the age of nine when I kissed a friend and felt very confused about it. Later, as a teenager, I had a huge crush on Barbara Streisand. Yentl was epic. When I came out to my parents two years later, my mum, who'd been my rock, and really my only parent, as my dad worked abroad most of my childhood, rejected me and told me it was the worst thing I could have told her. It broke me and created a huge sense of shame in me that I carried around for many years, resulting in massive abandonment issues. It wasn't until I hit my 30s and started to, with the help of the therapist, shed the shame that I started to feel immense pride at being a lesbian. I had years of therapy to disentangle myself from my tendency to people please as a result of coming out and my relationship with my mum is now healed to the point where I'm married to a woman, a wonderful woman in fact, and have a wonderful 30 year old daughter and two grown up stepchildren and she, my mum, is involved in all of that. My story doesn't end there though. Last year at the grand old age of 56 I came out as non-binary. All my life I've struggled with my outward appearance as I felt I never fitted in. I wasn't fen, but I wasn't butch. Sometimes I describe myself as soft butch, but this never really felt right either. It was harder as I got older as well, and I often joked with my wife that I dressed like a 12-year-old boy. 
But my professional life was even more tricky. It's hard to be taken seriously when you don't fit the stereotypes played out in meetings and in boardrooms. I work in a leadership role in the health service where there is still, I'm afraid, a lot of prejudiced attitudes. I never had the language to explain to myself or anyone else and often was misgendered. Now I have the term non-binary. I feel freer to be me, to dress in a way that I choose and to let people around me deal with their own biases and prejudices. I still do have gender dysphoria and I've struggled with my body shape, but I'm slowly making steps to overcome this and move forward on my healing journey. Sorry this is so long, but I wanted you to know that having this podcast, as well as finding like-minded friends through the work that I do around EDI, has made a massive impact on me. You have lifted me from a dark place to a lighter one. And I know this is true for many of your listeners. Never underestimate how impactful you are by doing this work. Thank you. Thank you so much for getting in touch with me and for saying those kind things about the podcast. And you're so right. There is a real lack of older LGBTQIA plus voices in the podcast. So please do get in touch. I love hearing from everyone from all parts of our community. And thank you so much for not only sharing your story with me, but sharing so many of your feelings as well. I really appreciate it. And the kind words about the podcast, as I'm sure you know, really mean a lot. Okay, I've got one more email to share and then we've got Emmett's excellent episode. Dear Susie, big fan of the podcast and your stand-up. I also love Big Kick Energy with Maisie. That's my podcast about women's football. I've really got back into the women's game because of it, so thank you for that. I'm getting in touch to thank you for this podcast, though. It's so refreshing to hear so many queer stories that have happy endings. Like you, I grew up under Section 28. And because of that, and a general acceptable homophobia that was around at the time, I stayed in the closet much longer than I wanted to. If people like you and Steph McGovern and Jen Brister and last week's guest Tig Notaro and some of our awesome lionesses had been around when I was growing up, I think I would have accepted myself a lot quicker and been a lot happier. But I am so happy for young gay women now coming out. How bloody awesome to feel less alone. I can't wait to see your stand-up show in a few weeks. Lots of love, Harriet. Thank you, Harriet. I really appreciate you getting in touch to say that. I think that a lot. Do you know, I was at the Attitude Awards this week where I was chatting to Steph McGovern, who is just brilliant. I just love her. She's great. And we were saying about the representation and we were talking about the lionesses specifically, but then lots of different queer people in the room. And we were both saying, oh, imagine if we'd seen women like this when we were growing up. It would have been so brilliant. So I'm so pleased for young women now. And, you know, it's never too late for that representation, is it? Thank you, Harriet, for getting in touch and uh, come say hi at my tour show in a couple of weeks. Okay, let us get on with today's conversation. It is with the brilliant Emmett de Monterey. I hope that you love this as much as I did. Go and buy his book. It's brilliant. So if you are a regular listener to this podcast, you will know that I'm very into my books. I've always got a couple on the go and I love just falling into another world and during my family holiday this year today's guest's memoir was my companion and let me tell you I could not put it down go the way your blood beats a memoir is Emmett de Monterey's first book and it's his story growing up in the 1980s in South London with cerebral palsy Emmett was prayed over abused in the street totally unsupported by mainstream schooling and warned at his sixth form college that if the rumours that he is gay are true it's likely that he'd be expelled. It sounds, and it is, the book is enormously moving and some of it is upsetting, but also it really shines a light on a story that we don't often see. And it also 
and I don't know how much Emmett will like this word, but there is an inspiration to it about being unapologetically, authentically yourself. And I think lots of people listening will understand that feeling and will hold on to that. It's insightful, unflinchingly honest and beautifully written. It's about one man's fight to be seen. And I'm thrilled to talk to him today. Hello, Emma. Oh, hello, Susie. I feel a bit moved by that. I'll just gather myself. (laughs) Oh, that's very nice. I told you, I messaged you afterwards and said how much I loved the book. I think it's... It's a story that you sort of might think you know if you have friends that are queer or friends that are disabled or is disabled the right word to you? Yeah, for me. For you, yes. Okay, I would like prefer to check. But but, but, but having such a unapologetically honest sort of telescope into your world, I found enormously moving. Thank you so much. It's lovely to hear. What was the experience of writing it like, of writing a memoir? Because you're a psychologist. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a trained psychotherapist. Psychotherapist, um, right, okay. But so are you well, constantly having sort of two dialogues <laughs> in your head of like part of you's on the couch and part of you sitting next to it? A little bit. Yeah. But I'm not, you know, I always wanted to be a writer. Right. And um, as a disabled kid, mm-hmm. books were a very, really important means of travel. Yes. You know, they were a way for me to explore different brighter bigger worlds when my friends were outside playing and Mm. you know so books were really important and you know as the years went by I had this kind of secret private thing of oh I really want to write a book I really want to write a book and my husband who we'll talk about more later kept saying to me like you really should you should just try Mm. and I realized that really the story I had to start with was my own yeah and then I found the right now competition yes and i applied for it and got selected which was really peculiar um i don't think it's peculiar at all because <laughs> i i implore my listeners <laughs> the listeners our listeners today to, to pick up the book because i don't think it is surprising you have a beautiful way with words but you also really specifically set a scene like i really felt like i knew your family home oh that's like i know right. like i feel like i know your mum i tried really hard <laughs> to, to She's great. Isn't she? <laughs> yeah, she really is. She, she sounds is like great. an absolute legend. Yeah, she is. <laughs> but I um I really tried hard to put people into that experience mm-hmm. to give them the colors and the sounds and the smells yeah. and and like you were saying the emotional the emotional texture of it, the way mm. it felt to be yes. to feel so alienated and to be yes. and to feel at moments incredibly alone and Going back to your earlier question, the experience of writing it, I hoped it would be really, really cathartic. Mm. And I I hoped that when I came to the end, I'd kind of be able to put that stuff to bed. And in a way, I sort of have. But it also, you realise that it doesn't really fix anything. Mm. Even even having your say and putting it out there, it just makes you think about it in a slightly different way. Yes. I find it's slightly different, but I find often if you're sort of aiming towards something or you're writing a thing and you need to get it finished sort of part of your brain goes and then when I've done that everything will be great yeah, <laughs> because, exactly. because I've done that thing that I meant to do and then you do the thing and you sort of go oh I'm I'm still me in this scenario yeah, exactly. I'm still me here now, you, exactly. now I've just got a book next to me <laughs> so I don't want to give away too much of the book but also you know I want to I want to share you with the audience so let's start kind of in, in the first sort of part of the book where when you're 18 months is it that your parents realized there was something well, different to yeah my mum my mum has four other siblings right and so and she's the eldest so mm-hmm. she kind of really brought the you know she helped to bring them up mm. and so she knew from seeing other babies move that something was wrong about me 
Right. And obviously she didn't want to see it for quite a long time. Yeah, of course. And then she said to my dad, like, we have to go to the hospital because Emmett is not, you know, I wasn't crawling. I wasn't, I wasn't really, you know how babies, I mean, I know you've got a baby. If you're, yeah. You know how babies kind of explore their feet? Yes, and they, yes. And I wasn't doing any of that. And I was, uh, and so she... And my dad didn't want to see it either. So no. he was like, no, he's fine. He's absolutely fine. And they were fine. quite young, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, they were very young. And this is going back a long time. This is kind of the late 70s. So culturally, we're in a quite a different place now. Yes, absolutely. Um, and they really didn't want to see what was going on. And then eventually my mum said, we're going. We have to mm. We have to see. And the consultant said, yeah, he's he's clearly got some neurological damage. That was the word they used then. And I suppose when, when a parent would hear the word neurological damage you you would fear that that would be mm. a now do correct me if i use the wrong terminology because I, I i try my best but sometimes get things wrong but you would fear maybe that there would be an intellectual yes. disability yes, or absolutely. a uh, or, or you know something to do with how someone would grasp the world absolutely uh in in that respect and was that a great yeah, fear for you're them. absolutely right that was that i think i think that was their biggest fear yeah. actually more than the physical stuff i think mm. they because obviously as a parent you want your child to experience the world as fully and as totally. wonder, as wonderfully as they can and yeah they were really concerned that that was also going to be a problem and and luckily it wasn't and was there a moment when i suppose your mum must have realized that you were in there yeah. you know that, that, yeah, this no. you know this version of you the grown-up version of you that i'm now opposite but that that you know that there was the that you were you were sharp you know in that respect the lovely thing was the, the health visitor said in common with a lot of people with cerebral palsy when he starts talking he'll never stop yeah. and my mum laughs about that to this day she's like yeah you're very you're very you know you're very talkative yeah and you're very forthright so yes. yeah you you you've never really been shy at putting yourself forward is that a forthrightedness forthrightedness <laughs> forthrightness who knows um is that do you think that is something that was like there within you like intrinsic to who you are or is it because you've always had to do that little bit of extra fighting i think you're exactly right susie i think it's about the little bit of extra fighting mm. i've also been very conscious that i can't move in the way that my friends can and right. i can't move in the way that other people in the world can so i needed to make it attractive for people to want to sit next to me so i needed to be funny or i needed to be entertained yeah. I'm, I'm not nearly as funny as you are <laughs> but, but well you only see me on good days they're the only days they record it but but I needed to be attractive and yeah. I needed to be, I needed to have people, I need, I wanted company, I wanted friends. Of course. So you don't want to be the person who's quiet. You, no. And also in common with a lot of disabled people, I wanted to make people comfortable mm -hmm. so, to be, so, so I was never precious around the language that was used. Yes. And I was quite careful to make, to laugh at myself mm. and so that people were laughing with me rather than at me. Yes. Do you know what I mean? I yeah, tried to make control. It, yeah, tried to make it quite an open dialogue and I, and I tried to make it like there was never anything that was off limits and mm. never anything for me. I, I know I can only speak for me. Of course. But there was never anything that I wouldn't talk about or that, mm. I, that I wouldn't approach with people. I think that's interesting as well because obviously... You know, you're part of two communities, which is something we were talking about before. Well, so we're all part of several communities, aren't we? I'm we a, are. You know, I'm a comedian, I'm a lesbian, I'm a woman, I'm, you know, I'm lots of things. But 
I think that's something that's come up before on the podcast, talking to other queer people and that sort of taking ownership of laughter mm. or just being funny to sort of mask something else about yeah. yourself. Yeah. I, I don't know. I wonder if you were doing that for both sides. Very, both of those very much of so. Very much so. Because I did, I think I, when I first became aware of my sexuality, I told myself that really what I was interested in was just, I would I would sit on the bench in the playground mm -hmm. looking at the boys playing football. Mm -hmm. You know, I spent a lot of break times sitting with the girls, which I loved. Yes. And, what, and there's that yeah. friend that was oh, became like your best lovely friend. Lovely Joanna, who yeah. was just brilliant. Are you still friends with her? Yes, yes, I am. Nice. <laughs> and she's she's got a lovely wife and it's all worked out very yes. well. So it's delightful. Yeah, that's um, really nice. But she she used to sit with me and I used to watch the boys playing football and and I used to think that it was only that I wanted to be like them. Yeah. I wanted to be physically able like they were. But as I got older, I suddenly started to think there's another component to this mm. because I found them so, yeah, I found that physicality so attractive. Yeah. And, I found, and, I, and I suddenly was like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, because I'm trying to think like, so that would have been sort of mid 80s. Mm. Yeah, it was about kind of 1989. So it was the height of the moral panic around AIDS yes. and the whole, I mean, not dissimilar to the environment we're in now with the Conservative government yes. attacking our rights left, yes, right and centre and stirring up anti-gay and anti-trans rhetoric. Yes, 100%. It feels quite familiar, doesn't yes, it? Yes, it does, um, it does. But I remember kind of that horrible advert on the television, you know, the AIDS Tombstones. monolith of like, don't die of ignorance. So in common with a lot of gay people, my first understanding of my emerging sexuality was as a playground slur. Mm -hmm. I just didn't want to be called a bender. Yeah. I would I would do anything to not be seen and called a bender. So I, I was actually, to my shame, I would pick on other people so that I wouldn't be considered the suspect. You know, it, yeah. was, it was a really peculiar, hothouse, quite hostile environment to grow up in. And that feels, I mean, I think that feels uh, quite familiar to me and, and I know indeed to other people that we've chatted to on this show trying to make people look the other way yes, so as not to look at you and exactly. I think you know there were certainly times in my when I was younger where I would feel quite guilty for that but I think everyone's just trying to survive aren't they I mean yeah. school is I mean for some of us fucking horrific and <laughs> for me it was pretty bad yeah like yeah. I hated it I mean horrific might be a bit strong but I, I don't remember having a good day it's it's survival there's really no, there's no two ways about it. And so you you moved around schools quite a lot. Yeah. And obviously your mum and dad knew very early on that intellectually there was nothing, there was nothing different about you. And they had to, there was a bit of a fight to get you into the sort of mainstream yeah, into school. mainstream system. school, exactly. I, I started school in a, a local disabled nursery which was very friendly very kind very small but presumably that's just anyone that's other yeah for want of a better word yeah. is that right it, it, exactly yeah it, it was just for anybody who had special needs right yeah in in the local catchment area and I had a really lovely time mm. there and I felt very safe but I also internalized something really weird I kind of made it up in my own head that disability I kind of thought that everybody had it and that it was something that you grew out of. Oh, really? <laughs> it was really peculiar looking back on it. And I remember when I was writing the early parts of the book and I said to my mum, like, 
did I really think that or or am I making it up with in hindsight and she's like no you you had decided that this was just a phase that you were going to grow out of yeah so that was do you remember the moment when you realized that you weren't going to grow out of it yeah I write about it in the book I I started walking on something called a rollator which is like a kind of a, a wheeled frame so mm-hmm. that was when I started and then I graduated from that onto my first pair of baby sticks mm-hmm. and I was finding them very hard going and hard to navigate and I was walking down the road to the sweet shop with my mum one day it was a really sunny day and I must have been about five or six maybe a bit younger and I could see my shadow on the pavement and I could see her shadow in front of me and her shadow obviously was very different to mine Mm. but it was the first time I'd seen what I looked like moving through the world right and I saw because I suppose in a mirror you're yeah you just yeah and you see yourself from you know in Mm. in sections don't you yeah so so I kind of saw myself and I thought oh my goodness like I'm and it was really a challenging moment because here I was with this person I loved more in than all the world Mm. you know she was my mum she was my family and I realized that we were so different in that Mm. moment in that moment like she loved me and I loved her but we we were in the world in a very different way. Yeah. Which is quite a challenging thing to understand when you're so little. Yeah. You know, and I wonder that, that your mum must have had that same moment mm. at one point or another. Yeah, she did. When she was walking next to you. Yeah, absolutely. So it seems natural now to come onto the, the sort of section of the book where you, you're thinking that you were going to grow out of it. Then there was this sort of discussion that there could be a miracle the yes, children that yeah. had cerebral palsy and if you don't mind people that are listening that are like i don't really have a context for what cerebral palsy is or what it does to your body or how it right. changes you yeah of course um could you sort of give us a little recap on sort of right. what, what it of course. means cerebral palsy is an umbrella term yeah for it's basically a collection i don't like this word but they call it movement disorders right and okay. i don't consider it to be a disorder any longer no although i did when i was you know I, I've, you I've gone on a bit of a journey with it but um yeah it, it's it's a term that's characterizes a, a group of movement disorders that are primarily neurological so right. basically cerebral palsy usually arises through birth trauma or yes. you know difficult deliveries yes thing, yes one of like my that. very good friends that yeah. was the situation for not her. always but right. but it sometimes happens sort of post-utero, I believe, but it's usually as a result of brain injury. Um, and that could be something birth. like, well, I know with my friend, it's it's because that she was starved of oxygen on her yeah. sort of way into Ex- the world. Exactly the same. Right, okay. And then there's there's sort of a few, well, there's, I think, several different types where, you, where your body can yeah. be sort of, and again, please correct me, but of like course. sort of more t- sort of tight. Yeah, that's what I've got. I've got a subset called spastic diplegia, right. which means that my that my muscles are kind of overwound. Yes. Means I'm great in the cinema and scary movies. I'm just <laughs> jumping all over the place. People hate sitting behind right. me. No, I'd quite, like, I'd quite like to go with you because I quite like jumping. So I'm that's jumping, fine. I'm jumping really far. Fine. Okay, you might have to hold my hand, but other than that, I'd that's fine. I'd be delighted. <laughs> and, then, and then there's all other types that, that affect people in different ways. Yes. And so there was this, there was a, a, an American doctor, which... I guess certainly at that time. I mean, still today, to some degree, I guess there, you know, you'll hear about these medical miracles yeah. that will change everything and will mean that you, you know, that you don't have these. That your body's different to how it is right now, and so, 
how did that come about? Was it through a doctor? Yeah, what was really what was really strange about it, and I guess lucky, was that as I was growing um, taller, I was getting pulled into a crouching gait, and my consultant guys said, you know, if this child gets much taller, then they'll be in a wheelchair, which obviously isn't a terrible thing at all. No. But we wanted to investigate alternatives. So no, just to so, check, when you say a crouching gait, do you literally mean like bent forward yes yeah, yeah i was being yeah. i was essentially being pulled off my feet because you know what we were saying earlier about tight muscles yes my hamstrings were getting tighter and tighter and tighter so they were just yeah and pulled. pulling me down right. yes okay. so they said if, if if we don't intervene then this child's going to be pulled off their feet and but what they were they were suggesting some quite haphazard medical interventions of like hamstring lengthening and hamstring cutting and stuff like that and my parents being the lovely sensible inquiring people that they are said this isn't good enough no for our ch- you know you we're not allowing you to cut up our child on a whim so unless, yes so unless you can come back to us with what what the result of this is likely yes. to be then we're not going to do it so um but is it sort of like i don't want to use the word guinea pig but was it like something that they hadn't done an awful lot of and it was a no they'd done a lot of that kind of surgery in england right but when but when we saw we waited another year and we saw another consultant at Guy's and she said, I don't know whether you'd be interested in this, but I've been reading about this new procedure that's being trialled in America and I don't know whether you'd be interested in this, but I think Emmett's an ideal candidate for it. And I kind of didn't think I would get it. Was it like sort of putting your name into a drawer? Yeah, and I I was... This is the situation with Emmett. And I was videotaped in in a dingy room in my pants and my holy socks as a kind of 11 year old and I, and I was just happy to be off school for the afternoon yeah. <laughs> I just didn't I just didn't really know what I was doing but I knew that and if, what sort of age were you at? I was 11 yes I was, I was 11 and I kind of thought well you know I'm going to be off school I might get McDonald's on the way home so we'll, we'll just see what happens and I was videotaped and I was selected and part of the agreement if you like with with Guy's Hospital was that I would be a figurehead for this charity called One Small Step that would raise money to bring the technology that was being used in America back to Guy's Hospital so that children in the UK with CP could benefit from the same process. So it was really weird because not only was I selected to have this process, but I was also doing it in public. Yeah, like a poster boy. Yeah, doing it as part of a massive media campaign, which which was really odd. Because you have like cameras following yeah, you we, we the had, time. We had two, I was the subject of two BBC documentaries at the time. I got something, I got awarded something called, we would never use this word now, and I'm really glad that language changes and mm-hmm. thinking changes, but I was awarded something called the Stars Organisation for Spastics Special Award. Right. And that was on television. And it was really peculiar to, the rhetoric around it was that it was a miracle and that, and that you know, yeah, it was really, really weird to be up against that. And that puts a lot of pressure on it working. Yeah. And also it did work. The 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 surgeon who did the surgery was he was absolutely baffled by the level of attention that I had and this huge media circus that I was part of. Um and you know, he always said to me, We're talking about improvement, we're not talking about cure. Right, yeah. We will be able to have you walking into adulthood which yes. I, which I still can and I, and I still yes. do so in that sense I'm incredibly grateful but the things that are more complicated about it 
was it gave me the idea that I somehow needed to be fixed. You know, and at that age, I really wasn't able to inhabit my disabled identity mm. with any degree of pride. And I'm glad to say that that's changed. And I've, I've thought a lot about, you know, what we think about disabled people as a culture and the problem of internalised ableism. Yeah. And, and obviously it is, you know, the built environment and society's prejudice makes my life more difficult. But Of course. But my disability is not the problem really is no. the attitudes of some of those around me and it's taken me a long time to get to that and po point the, the world in which you inhabit that's yes. been made by people that don't you know that that have not considered someone that isn't like them yes exactly exactly and so you you went to america and it did work because it absolutely you, you did. walked in here today yeah, absolutely um, did. but it wasn't, I guess, for it to be a media story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was about it being a miracle, it which doesn't really happen. I mean, I remember one of the headlines from our local paper, the South London Press, mm -hmm. when I went back to my boys' school the first... No, actually, it wasn't then. It was just before I'd left the UK to have the surgery. It said, boys' sci-fi bid to walk. And it was like... And I won't say anything bad against the journalists because they all became friends and actually we're a very small family of only three so being part of a larger group of journalists was actually quite handy mm. because it meant that you didn't think about what you were actually there to do yes and they became they became very good friends some of them still to this day right and so i won't but as you're saying the media always has to have an angle yes you know and and boy goes to get improvement surgery is not nearly as dramatic no. as you know, like sci-fi bid yeah. to walk, you know. So I do understand why they had to take that. And also, we wanted to raise as much money as we could yeah. to give other children in the UK the same opportunity. So, mm. but it, but what was really peculiar about it was, was also understanding around the same time that I was also gay. Yeah. So I had this double difference. And that was really, <laughs> really tricky. I know you were saying about the the boys playing football when you, you noticing them, and then I guess at one point it would have been jealousy. Yeah, and then it sort huge of moved jealousy into something that uh, was you know closer to attraction. I'm wondering, was there any frame of reference for someone that had a disability and also were gay? I'd love to say yes, and actually I was thinking about this on the cab on the, in the cab on the way over here. I know one of your previous guests who's a bit of a hero of mine, the wonderful, wonderful Rosie Jones. Yeah. If I had had somebody like that on my TV screen at, at that age, I would have been... It would... I can't even... I almost can't even articulate what it yeah. would have meant to me mm. to have an out gay woman yeah. who, who also had my diagnosis. Yeah. You know, obviously her disability is different. All yes. of our disabilities are different, but... It would have meant the world... To, I mean, I know that she, we spoke before we started recording about, you know, she has quite a difficult public-facing yeah. role and she comes up in for a lot of stick, very sadly. But if I had had somebody like her in my orbit, it would have really shown me that this was possible. Yeah. That it, that it wasn't going to be easy. No. That it wasn't going to be... Yeah, it wasn't going to be something 
that yeah just just wasn't going to be easy I don't really need to say more than that I think that's the wonderful thing about sort of Rosie's visibility as a person with a disability but also as as a lesbian is that she has a happy life and I think that's the thing that I mean I can only speak from a sort of queer woman's perspective but you know I didn't feel like I saw a lot of that as a a gay person someone that had a happy life so I can only imagine the sort of you know the yeah. the double weight of that. I had I had no role models yeah. and I had no roadmap and yeah. and I and also coming of age in the beginning of the AIDS crisis where you read headlines every day of like uh, I remember one where a vicar I think in the Sun said if my son came out as gay then I would rather shoot him yeah, than have that. a and which is no, I don't just, remember I remember I've, yeah, I've seen it just yeah. just appalling uh, so. Yeah, I just didn't know how I was going to navigate it. And I just, I mean, I don't come from a particularly religious family, but my grandma was very, very Mm. religious. And I remember she used to take me to mass. I write about it quite a lot in the early sections of the book. And I remember praying, Mm. actually praying to this God that I wasn't sure I actually believed in even then. But I was like, please, I can't. I can be one or the other, but I can't be both. You know, I, I, can, yeah, I, could I, can't be, have... I can be gay or I can be disabled, but I don't know how to be this thing. I just don't know how to do it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there's also, from what I've read and when I've spoken to people, there's also a massive desexualization of people that have a disability. Absolutely. In that, you know, they, we just pretend that, that people that are disabled don't want to have sex, which yeah. is... Absolutely. Insane, because, Absolutely. you know, unless, obviously there's some people that don't want to have sex, but <laughs> lots of people do. Yeah, of course. And that's the point, isn't it? If you if you don't see someone, it's not about whether you fancy someone or whether you don't, because that's a slightly different conversation. But if you don't see someone as worthy of sexual desire, yeah. then you're enormously dehumanising yeah. them. You're taking away a part of their essential humanity. Yes, and so, sort of lessening them to just yeah. one thing Absolutely. about them. So there's great parts of the book where you cover your schooling and you talk about you know, what that existence was like and, you know, how unbelievably unhelpful the mainstream schooling system was, which, I mean, it's it's so cruel that that became, that was just normal for you to, for teachers not to say, yeah, we can do everything on the ground floor. Mm. I don't know what difference it's, it would make to all the teachers. Sm- it's such a small adjustment such as well, isn't it? Such a small thing to make it, I don't know how, I don't know how these teachers slept at night seeing mm. you trying to get around the school and always being late when they could have done something to... was really peculiar. Yeah. But what was really more weird for me was that it sounds a horrible thing to say out loud, but I always expected to be bullied in my boys' public school and I never was. I actually Mm. fit in. I was actually really happy there and I wasn't one of the most popular kids but I had a gang, yeah, and I, and I had a place, and there were like and, the young boys uh, yeah. that like carried your bag, yeah, and for I had you and, and I had friends, and I had a community. But then when I had to leave that school for the reasons you you've spoken about, I went. I then went back into special education, and I and I really really disagree with segregated education yes. as a, as an idea anyway. Right. But I went back into special education, and the place where society told me I belonged was actually the place where I've never been more bullied in my life yeah. because I was too I was too gay for that environment yeah. you know and going back to what you were saying about disability and sexuality I think I was too confronting for that mm. environment because as you're saying we're not encouraged to think 
disabled people aren't encouraged to think of ourselves in in sexual terms anyway and we're mm. not supported to to explore that yeah and so if you've got someone who's so gay and i was re i'm really <laughs> like super gay that was a real problem for the environment that i was in and do you think that there was an element with with those children that were also in the special needs school that you were too much yeah like that you were because society has gone you are all the same so you will be together yeah. but you being gay made them yeah. flinch away from you because Absolutely. you didn't want they didn't want to be identified and with you i don't know whether you feel this as a as a gay woman like very often labels are helpful yes but they can also kind of be a bit narrow yes and like, restrictive like you know there are as many ways to be gay as there are to be you know you're susie yes you're not yes. just you're not just lesbians yes so, you know and and so labels are really helpful as a shorthand but actually you know they're also really restrictive but Though, I mean, I could have done myself a, a few favours. Like, I remember my first night at the school and I'd I'd stolen a dressing gown from my mother's, from my mother, the back of my mother's wardrobe because I just loved it. I just loved it. It was this red silk dressing gown. with Sort of like a kimono. Yeah, it was thing. covered in like gold embroidery. It was really out there. I mean, it was kind of this really ugly thing, actually. But, and we had a fire alarm in the middle of the night. So I put it on and went to the, went to the kind of assembly point. And it was then I realised that actually I would have made less of an impression if I'd gone in full drag, yeah. Because it was, it was like here I am, and yeah. also, and also I'd been the kid on the telly who'd flown to America to get my legs fixed, so there was quite a lot of f bad feeling towards me anyway. Kind of the idea that I'd somehow rejected my disabled identity right, yeah. by trying to be fixed. And then there I was, essentially in drag in the middle of the night. So it wasn't a great start. It really wasn't. There's sort of sections of the book that you, or sections of your life rather, in the book that you miss. You 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 sort of, you reached the stage where you decide to come out and you talk to your lovely mum about it. Oh, and yeah. she's lovely. enormously supportive. Oh, she's just the best. Hi, mum. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> um, but once you had decided to, to come out or decided to sort of have an ownership of, of who you were did you then think right well where are the people like me in this bar that where you know because I think that you know certainly when you first come out and and I know there'll be younger listeners going it's not like that anymore Suze but I can only talk from my experience you know it was very much like boys in tiny shorts dancing yeah. on podiums very much and that like yeah and <laughs> very much that and i remember you know as a, as a gay woman being there and being like god there's only like 10 of us <laughs> but i can't imagine what it would be like to be like there's only me yeah it was it's really weird because i've i, I mean i spoke i've spoken a lot about this with laura Kay, your pre yes. previous guest who yes who's also a, a lovely friend a wonderful yes. friend i know i'm desperately trying to like get her to become my friend but that's uh she's I think she already considered uh, that's good friend, that's good Susie. um if you don't know laura wrote wild things and tell me a secret and uh, she was on in the last series. She's a novelist. If you haven't listened to that episode, I highly recommend it. And that's actually, I think, how this connection yes. came about yeah. because she suggested that I read your book, which of course I did. But sorry, please go ahead. But, but I remember talking to her about, you know, my coming out experience and and 
for many people, not everybody, but for many people, coming out is kind of a moment of real liberation, and like mm. you can breathe out. You can you've said it to yourself. Yes, you've you've acknowledged it to yourself, and and the world hasn't ended. Mm-hmm. And you've gone, oh my, you know, and you go on to find your tribe, and you are more or less embraced by the culture that you see around you. But I kind of knew that it was going to be more difficult for me. I remember having a conversation with my mum. She drove me back to school and kind of in in two hours I came out and then had to go back into the closet because obviously I couldn't be out at school. Yeah. And she said, obviously, Emmett, you've got to live as fully and as completely as you can. But I will... I will confess to being a bit nervous for you Mm. because I want you to find love. I want you to find friends. I want you to find happiness. And I'm not sure, you know, you're going into a world that's very much about physical perfection. And obviously our conversations have moved on a lot. There's a lot more body positivity. There's a lot more talk about diversity. But I kind of knew that the rainbow of inclusion, you know, the rainbow, the rhetoric around the rainbow of gay inclusivity... I knew it was going to be difficult for me to find a place to to live in. Mm. And actually, the first time I went to a gay bar, which I talk about in the book, was really, really challenging because mm. I was sat down and a man bought me a drink. And when I'm sat down, I look like everyone, you know, I look like everyone else. And he, he saw my crutches under the table and he said... Um, his assumption was that I was HIV positive and he said, how long have you been positive? So, and I didn't want to tell him that I was actually a virgin so there was no way for me to be positive or negative. Mm. So I was like, but I didn't, so I said, you know, um, I'm I'm not um, positive, I'm careful and actually I'm disabled. And he immediately said, you know, essentially said, fuck off home. What, what are you doing here? You know, yeah. why are you wasting my time? And he reminded me that he'd bought me two drinks and somehow I wasn't worth those two drinks. And if you're listening, fuck you, Nick. <laughs> Which I assume isn't your real name, but fuck you, Nick. <laughs> Thank you, Susie. <laughs> I love being in this safe, supportive, inclusive queer space. It's great. Um, now, some, something that you don't really cover in the book, and I wonder if you'd share a little bit with me, is that now you're married. And we don't get to that sort of adult part of your life. You don't talk about becoming a psychotherapist. And so, I don't know whether you're planning on writing um, memoir too no i'm well actually no god no <laughs> too much never, never want to write about myself again no i'm, I'm trying and failing at the moment to write a novel oh we all trying and failing to write novels yeah, Emma. don't my... pretend that you're the only one we're all doing that <laughs> love all got a novel under the bed <laughs> <laughs> but um no i i um i am married and it's it's it was really important for me to get married i know yeah. i know that that isn't you know Queer people don't have to get married no. just because we ca- now yeah. can. And, you know, there are lots of different models mm. of being queer. But it was really important for me to do it because I'm very, very aware that in... I'm going to get the numbers wrong because I'm crap at statistics. That's but right. I think in 66 countries around the world, you know, being queer is still criminalised. Yes, yes, I and think in, that's about right. And in 12 of those countries, it's a death sentence. Yes. It's a death sentence. So... I'm, I I was actually really moved on the day because I thought I'm going to do this because I have the legal right and the legal pr- protection to do it. So it's very important that I do it because other people can't. Yeah. And it was actually a lot more moving to me than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. You know, it was a Did very, you weep? 
I did weep. Although Laurel will tell you, I'm a big weeper at <laughs> kind of everything. Really. So how did you meet your husband? I met him, like a lot of arts graduates, I because I um, graduated in theatre design from Goldsmith. Right, okay. Um, like a lot of arts graduates, I had a very spotty employment history. Sure, we've all and been I, there. <laughs> I, was, I was at quite a low point working in a call centre. I won't mention for who. No. But I was working in a call centre and kind of wondering, oh my God, I wonder where my life's gone <laughs> and how old were you at this point i was about 25 26 right okay so you uh, hadn't moved into therapy then no i that wasn't even no, a... I, i'd been in therapy as a client sure but i didn't i um and i was kind of like i was really having a bad time and mm. i was like i do not know how, what to do how to i mean the people i met there were lovely and it wasn't a bad place no but it's, it wasn't for you wasn't for me wasn't wasn't what i had dreamed of and there he was one day with his feet up on the desk reading a book and I just thought he's a reader mm. we're going to have something in common and yeah he's he's lovely um, and, and how long have you guys been together now? 17 years wow 17 we, we've only been married for about a year and a half oh it's quite recent yeah, congratulations but, but thank you thank you but we've been together for about 17 years and and he is, ma- is magic Really, I don't want to swell his head too much, but I just—you <laughs> know—when you feel like you've you've really found the person that, yeah. that's meant to be with you, and one of the lovely things about it that I wasn't expecting at all was that he had two children from a previous relationship, so I'm now a stepdad. Oh wow! And. They just bring so much joy and happy. This is where I get, like I said, I'm a big crier. This is where I get a little bit emotional. He, so I've got these two lovely stepsons who are just, they, you know, they bring me so much joy and happiness and they're such lovely young men that it's really, you know, it's been a, a wonderful, wonderful thing. So the final part of the show, we we sort of do a, you know, a phone call to a younger self or indeed maybe someone's listening and they're relating to a certain part of your story right now, Emma. If you could reach out, and I guess I'm thinking about that version of Emma on the train home after Fuck You, Nick, was so horrible to you. Uh, <laughs> I in, love in that, that you hate this. <laughs> oh, I hate him. I hate him. You on the way home and now just telling me about your husband who's magic and your stepson's. If you could reach out to them and just give them a few words of encouragement or pop your arm around their shoulder, what would you say? I would say it isn't always going to be easy and you will be challenged by people and you'll be challenged by your environment and there will be people that don't agree with who and what you are. But equally, the flip side of that is you will find your tribe and you will find the people that love you and see you and celebrate you. And once that happens, life can be more wonderful than you ever imagined. So just hold on and you'll find it. Perfect way to end our conversation. Emmett, thank you so much. Thank you, Susie. It's been wonderful. That was the brilliant Emmett. I think you can tell. I I just think he's great. I loved his writing. I loved his story. I loved being able to share it. So thank you, Emmett, for coming on the show. Okay, that's pretty much it from me this week. I thought I'd let you know about my tour, uh, in case any of you are still planning on coming. There's only a smallish handful of dates left. Um, I'll run through them quickly in case you're listening and thinking I want to come. I'm going to Coventry, uh, Chorley. I think it's sold out, but maybe call the theatre. Kendall, Southport, Buxton, Basingstoke, Folkestone, 
Oh, Folkestone sold out. Maybe called the theatre, because um, sometimes they had released some on the day. Northampton, Aberdeen, Dundee, Newbury, Brighton, again, sold out, but maybe give them a call. Bury St Edmunds and my rescheduled filming of my special is on the 31st of January at the Bloomsbury Theatre in London. Okay, that is all from me this week. I'll be back next week with another brilliant episode. Thank you for listening and take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.